Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Science. Exercise. Nutrition. Health. Energy. Passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer Podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks, and hacks for a way to live better. Today, I'm joined by a truly inspirational guest who describes himself as a dreamer, schemer, lover, father, and adrenaline junkie. No, I'm not the guest. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Freddie Bennett. Hello, everybody. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here talking to so many of you and obviously to speak to the legend that is Rory as well. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Um, so if, for, if, if the name doesn't ring a bell, then I guess for everyone listening, do you remember the guy in the fisherman's costume? <laughs> was it, wasn't it a fisherman's costume? It was, wasn't it? Yep, it was. Bright yellow fisherman's costume. That's right. That's awesome. Um, we're going to get into a bit more detail about that. But um, mm. Just before we do dive into all that stuff, why don't you give me a bit of insight into um, a bit of history from from your perspective and running up to um, you know your relationship with alcohol and why you signed up to One Year No Beer? Sure, absolutely. So I worked out at an early age that I was very good at drinking. Um, I was the the stereotypical teenager. Uh, I've got fond memories of getting drunk for the first time when I was 15 years old and my baggy white jeans got covered in mud because I was um, probably drinking the local park or something. And then as as a teenager and going into university, um, my drinking was probably stereotypical, let's say, for someone growing up in the late 90s. Um, I would drink heavily at the weekends. I would party hard. I would start to pride myself on being the first person in a bar, the last person to leave, the person that would never turn down a shot. Um, and then I started to, to almost wear it as a badge of honor and, and become this person who had created a whole persona around being a heavy drinker. And, and I quite liked it. it. It gave me popularity. It gave me a, a bit of an adrenaline buzz, to be honest. When you walk into a bar and everybody cheers and shouts your name and puts some disgusting purple drink in your hand and expects you to drink it. Um, I I carried on in my 20s. I, I left university. I started working as a rock and roll management consultant in the city of London, um, I was thinking, Rory, I probably would have been drinking in very similar bars, if not the same bar that uh, that yourself and Andy were probably in back in the day. <laughs> yep. Um, and I became in in that in that sort of quite quite high pressure drinking situation where I would drink if I had a good day, I would drink if I had a bad day, I would drink to celebrate, I drink to commiserate. Um, I would then start to get into a pattern of drinking 
on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. And I'd, I'd always have these phrases like um, Thursdays are the new Fridays, which meant I could go out and get absolutely hammered on a Thursday night. And then before you know it, Wednesdays would be the new Thursdays and Tuesdays would be the new Wednesdays. But I would still be there feeling proud of myself because I would say Monday night, that's an alcohol free night. And I'd wear that like a badge of honor. And my relationship with alcohol, I think, was actually quite reversed. So I, I drank a bit as, as a teenager, say when you're you know, 15, 16, 17. But I was, I was a well-behaved teenager. I wasn't one of these kids that goes off the rails and, and totally loses themselves in, in alcohol and drugs. I was very well-behaved. I always did my homework. I, I did well at school because I worked my ass off, not because I was particularly clever. And I was very conscientious. But what I didn't realize at the time was um, a lot of alcohol was surrounding me in, uh, in my household. So my parents were both heavy drinkers. Um, my mum used alcohol as a, as a support for her mental health. My dad would just plow through wine and cigarettes like there was some kind of Brexit shortage about to happen. Um, <laughs> he, would, uh, he would happily get through, you know, three bottles of, of red wine and, and 40 cigarettes a night. And he wore that like a badge of honor as well. So I, it's fair to say I came from a drinking family. And then at a university, I was a typical university student that would, would get drunk two or three times a week. Um, but then it starts to go in reverse because almost when I left university and I went to my late 20s and into my 30s, rather than, than settling down and focusing on my career and thinking I had some fun when I was younger and, uh, and now let's, let's settle down a bit, I turned it up a notch. I turned that dial up to 11. I would still be going out drinking. And then without even noticing, the scale starts to tip when you have all these good times and great laughs with your friends and great experiences and funny stories. But they started to be slowly outweighed by the anxiety, by the depression, mm. the crippling hangover. The, the hilarious stories started to turn to, to looks of concern and people saying, are you okay? You've been, you've been hitting a bit hard uh, recently. And I know that that's when the stories start to come up of, um, you know, for example, getting getting so drunk, I, I didn't remember getting back to my hotel room and pretty much missed a flight home to the airport whilst on a work trip. And and that would be bad enough. We've all done that. Yep. Um, I was in a country where alcohol was currently illegal. Right. Um, which was uh, yeah, a Middle Eastern country that I won't name, but uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed back there. I'm sure I am. But um, it's a, yeah, it was <laughs> not when like, this podcast goes viral. <laughs> <laughs> it was things like you know, being, at, uh, being away on a works conference. Everyone has a good night in the bar until two in the morning. And I then locked myself out of my hotel room, which would have been great, except I was naked at the same time. So you clearly have some uh, some issues there if you happen to bump into your boss in the corridor. And Visiting another room, is that why you were... <laughs> I, I wasn't actually, I was very good. Was, I'm sure it was one of those things where you think it's a toilet door and you think, oh, hang on, I'm looking at a pop. I'm now, I'm now <laughs> being and, in a pop. Uh, and then having to run down to reception with that pop plant uh, covering my modesty. And, and it started to get to the stage where these stories are hilarious when you tell them the next day. But then you start to get the creeping thought inside your brain that maybe this isn't okay. 
and and then you start to think you know i i haven't got a drinks problem obviously because i'm not waking up and and drinking the funny thing is that maybe it's not okay is Mm. met in society with oh don't be ridiculous we've all done that exactly So you're like oh well maybe i'll just carry on then maybe maybe i'll just do it again and then a few people depending on Mm. what social circle you're in so if you're in London, if you're if you're in in the city environment, they'll be like, ah, yeah, great story, hilarious. We've all got them, you know, little notch or whatever it is. Yeah. But then, but then maybe some family or maybe some closer people or not in that environment are saying, hang on a minute, that doesn't sound, that's not normal. Yeah, absolutely, and and it was certainly getting like that. And I, so I I started to get this feeling, and it was around the end of you know, the last few months of, of 2018, and you know. All these, all these embarrassing, stroke, worrying stories were 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 stacking up. You know, things like blacking out and going missing during my thirtieth birthday. Which you say, well, that's fine. It's it's your thirtieth birthday. You're allowed to have a good time. It's like, yeah, but I I don't remember six hours of that night, and I still can honestly tell you if I was safe or where I was or anything else. And these slight these slight stories were starting to stack up and. I was struggling with my career for a number of reasons. Um, a key factor as well saying was that my my heavy drinking father um, taught me that that life is short and that life is precious, and that is a lesson that I will always cherish. Um, unfortunately, he had to teach me that lesson by dying very suddenly oh my god and and that was uh, in fact, it was three years this Sunday. That wow. died. So that was a, a very typical day at work. Um, I was sat there in, in an office in Manchester with probably with a hangover, um, moaning at spreadsheets, sat in my office saying, this computer's not working. Surely my day can't get any worse. My life is an absolute disaster. Uh, and then the phone rang. To cut a long story short, I had to, to jump into a car and drive 300 miles um, down to Bath, where he lived. Nothing on me, still wearing my suit, carrying my work bag. Um, got to hospital, and then uh, you know, a couple of hours later, I watched him die. So I had that day where you're having a normal lunchtime, and then by 8 o'clock that evening, I've watched my father die. And he didn't die exactly from alcohol poisoning, um, but it, you know, it certainly didn't do him any good and it was messy up his insides and and he sort of died very suddenly and very quickly and in the same vein he woke up and had breakfast that morning and that morning and he didn't know that he was going to die that day and and the hollywood version of the story would be that i said right i'm going to turn my life around i've seen the damage that alcohol can do this is the you know the wake up call that i've needed but that's the Hollywood version. The Freddie version is that I turned the notch up even harder. And I use this excuse of you only live once, life is short, have no regret, have no regrets. But I used it to, to try and destroy myself in terms of even heavier drinking. I just want to say that that is not the Freddie version. Um, no, you are yes. amongst the majority. <laughs> that is sure. the majority is... Mm-hmm that you know we we find these critical moments and then deal with it by compounding them and self-destruct and everything mm. else like that it's almost it's almost the way we're taught to i guess um yeah parents taught us to do it society taught us to do it push it down etc so exactly 
Um, but so you, you you turned it up to um, now we're at notch 15, are we? Yeah, we're probably, I think we've probably broken the scale now. And, and it was, and, and maybe, you know, podcast listeners will, will relate to this. It still wasn't the losing my home, losing everything on a park bench kind of situation, but it was still things that people listening may recognize. It was the whole, I'm going out for two drinks tonight and I've told my wife I'll be home by by 10 o'clock, but then actually you're falling through the door at six in the morning. It was the whole rushing to get the kids to bed and being short and impatient and being, frankly, a, a crappy father because I knew once they were in bed, I could sit there opening, you know, opening a bottle of wine and happily get through that bottle of wine. It was the going for a social night out with friends and it being a nice meal and a couple of drinks, but you're sneaking a couple of extra drinks in the kitchen whilst everyone else is in the lounge. It was those small drip, drip nuggets of self-destruction, really. Like I say, it wasn't falling off a big cliff. It was just doing these things where you know in your heart of hearts, this isn't cool. This isn't how I'm going to be the best, best version of me, but you can't help doing it because you like the buzz. It makes you feel better. It feels a little bit naughty. And you get into that vicious cycle where you feel a bit bad about it, but you know what's going to make you feel better and cure that anxiety. And that will be a cheeky drink. Yeah. And as I say, I, and stop me if I'm going on for too long, by the way, I'm on a no, roll it's now. Great. It's great. Um, Everyone would much about, rather hear from you than me. So don't well, worry. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep on going on. And so it was interesting around the end of, 2018 I started to get a feeling and say I had this whole new aspect on life that my dad had given me or his death had given me that I didn't want my life to be a waste I wanted to inspire people I wanted to be the best version of myself I said I wasn't doing great at home I wasn't doing great at work you just know when you're not in the zone and when your life isn't going in the right direction I was there and I've always had this goal that I knew that if I could stop drinking for a year I could become unstoppable. I could do things I'd only imagined and dreamt of. I knew I could be the absolute best version of myself. And I wouldn't have to spend lots of money. I wouldn't have to go on any long trips. All I had to do was give up alcohol for a long period of time. And I knew deep down that it would absolutely revolutionize my life. But yet still, I didn't do it. I got through Christmas because you have to drink at Christmas because everyone drinks at Christmas. And then you get to New Year. Yep, exactly. And you get to New Year and you think, right, dry January, but our New Year's Day blues. So I'm going to have a drink on New Year's Day. And all those losers are having no drinks in January. Everyone knows that that's bad for you. And you know, when your mates call up all these absolute rubbish stats about how dry January does you more damage than than not you know, moderating and everything like that. Um, and so I still told myself this story and I was still telling myself this story that I was going to get everything that I dreamed of and I could still drink most days of the week and maybe get absolutely obliterated once, you know, once a month or so. And, and it sounds a bit of a cliche, but then one morning on the 8th of March this year, I woke up on a work day, on a, on a Friday, with a killer, killer hangover, about two hours sleep in me. And I literally woke up and I said, 
I've had enough of this. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I've got a phrase that I use a lot at the moment, and that is to get the things you've always wanted, you have to do the things you've never done before. Amen. And that's what I go for. And I said, if I, I'm so determined in my life not to be one of those people that says, oh, I wish I'd done that, but I didn't have the time, or I could have done that, or I should have done that. Because I know that my dad said that, and I know that he he died with regret, and and that's not a nice thought. And I'm I I'm so determined to make an impact with my life and impact other people and to help other people that I know in order to do that I have to step out of my comfort zone. And for me, alcohol is not just a crutch or a comfort blanket. It's this whole comfort zone that I've designed around myself. So I have to now show it the middle finger and say, if I want these things, if I want to be the business owner, the husband, the father, the world record holder, then I have to turn my back on this. And to be honest, once I made that decision, I wouldn't say it was easy, but I felt turbocharged. I felt bulletproof. I felt, even though some of the days in my one year no beer journey have been tough, I felt that I could manage it with the help of, of such an amazing community and yourself and Andy and Jen and everyone else. Awesome. That is amazing. Thank you. Well done to you because it's <laughs> you know, a phenomenal journey. So um, tell me a bit about what, what started to change for you when you made that commitment and, and a bit about your journey. So my, my journey was not an easy one. So I, I signed up to One Year No Beer, as I say, on Friday, I believe it was the 8th of March um, or 9th of March. That evening, so I'd, I'd been on my One Year No Beer journey for about eight hours that evening i was told to go to my son's or asked to go to my son's um spring fair at school help out like parents do and a lady came up to me and said oh brilliant freddie you're here would you mind manning the bar for a couple of hours so this is wasn't even day one it was hour eight of one year no beer and i was there surrounded with alcohol and the lady saying oh obviously help yourself to a couple of beers as a thank you and and it was almost like one year no beer has been a number of crossroads. I knew I could take the easy option and the easy path and just say, you know, get the weekend out of the way, then I'll start on Monday or, you know, I'll have a couple and not tell anyone. I won't get drunk, I'll just have a couple of beers. And, and then I thought, or oh, I could take the difficult path and, and say no to alcohol. And I knew if I could get through that evening, you know, a Friday night without alcohol was was brilliant on its own but but turning down free alcohol especially in, in a small school hall where there's 200 kids tearing around <laughs> I thought that would be a that would be a brilliant start and and that's been one of my key learnings from one year no mm-hmm. beer really is and I think some people struggle with this there is never a perfect time it's like it's the way of saying I had this as well. You always say, well, there's a, a big night out with my friends or there's just the birthday or there's just Christmas or there's just Tuesday or there's just something. People will always make an excuse. I did it for so long. And another saying I have with these things is, say you are, you're going on a journey, you're literally going on a journey and you're leaving your house. You never wait until every traffic light has turned green before you leave the house. Because if you waited for that, you would never leave and you'd never start your journey. Totes. So you have to say, I don't care that some of the lights are red. I don't care. There's never going to be a perfect time. Just decide to do it and just begin. And once you began, as I did, that then feels like 
such an achievement and then and then you get proud of yourself and you do a day and then you do that first weekend well, that, that's i think you couldn't have asked for a better experience because mm. the moment after commitment is yeah. your one of your strongest moments mm. so the fact that you were presented with a friday b free mm. alcohol behind the bar right i mean we're stacking up the things here yeah. like i mean Definitely. wow so you've got the you've got the momentum of purchase that then builds almost instantly you're so lucky that that happened then mm. And didn't happen five days, six days, maybe even seven days down the track. Maybe you had easy three or four days mm. and you didn't actually have anything, to any win to get over. Because yeah. you are somebody who likes to crunch down your win. <laughs> like you go out there yeah. and you just go and get shit done. And I think that's driven mm. by your experience by your dad. And, and, and that you know, very powerful the thing you said that he lay on his, on his bed with regret. So mm. you were like, I must, I must, so you need these things. So that's yeah. why you were presented with that. And it gave you such a platform then to keep going and keep going. Yeah. And keep going. Um, so you're, I, I, you know, you're absolutely spot on. There is no perfect timing. And yes. as I always say to people, if you look ahead and you see an event and you think you can't do it, that's why you should do it. Exactly. Yeah. And funny you should say that because then I come into another part of my one year no beer one year no beer journey in in trying to, to live the life I want to live. And as I said earlier, I I know I'm quite extreme in my views and the challenges I want to set myself and Quite frankly, I, I think of myself as an ordinary guy that's just decided to do some extraordinary things. And, and that's that. one of my new missions and goals in life is to help other people do the same. And you know, before One Year No Beer, I did things like I, I ran 250 miles through the Sahara Desert in a race called uh, Marathon de Sable, which is commonly known as the world's toughest ultramarathon. Um, you know, I, I did the world's highest bungee jump. I cage dived with great white sharks. And so I a bit like my drinking habits almost. I, I don't do things by halves. I, I do things to the extreme. And then with this new energy and and confidence that one year no beer gave me, I thought, well let's let's try and do what I love. I've talked about this life that I love doing. Let's actually make it happen. And that was only because say one year no beer had given me confidence. It had given me more time. It had given me a clearer head. I didn't have that alcohol fueled anxiety that was whispering in my ear saying, you can't do this. Don't, mm. don't be stupid. Just sit back where life is comfortable and okay and have a beer. I had this turbocharge and I, then it started to, to roll quite quickly. So I, so I've done a few marathons before, but when I hit, um, it would have been when I hit 90 days on the day, I ran the Manchester marathon and I knocked almost 40 minutes off my PB time. Wow. So, um, yes, my PB before then, before one year, no beer, um, was something like 3.48. Um, then after one year, no beer, I was running a marathon in three, minute, three hours, 19 minutes. Wow. And, and that was awesome. And then we had the marathon, and then I thought, well, I quite like this. And my, my children, being kids, weren't impressed by a marathon PB or by running through the Sahara desert for a week, they said, well, daddy, we'd like to break. I know exactly. <laughs> like, you can't please some people, can you? And, um, and they said, well, daddy, we want you to break a world record. And, and I said, <laughs> okay, fine. Cause you know, they, the kids got the Guinness book of records for Christmas. They like reading through it. And, and they said, well, why aren't you in here, daddy? And 
And because I'd had that, that alcohol-free confidence, I said, well, you know what, why not? And I, I looked for some suitable records and I thought I'll do something with running. Um, I looked at, you know, you could be the fastest marathon dressed as a cheerleader or a postman or a cricketer or anything or, or a pint glass, ironically. Um, all those times <laughs> are quite quick. I know. It's, uh, it should be the fastest record to run away from a pint glass. Now. <laughs> being um, chased. Being yes, chased exactly. Yes. <laughs> Kicking it down the road saying, not today, pint glass. I've <laughs> <laughs> that world record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and to us, those, those records are too fast for me. They were sub three hours. But then I saw this one called The World's Fastest Fisherman, which was the fastest marathon ever dressed as a fisherman. And, you know, my, my kids being little boys, they love fishing and fish and everything. I live in Liverpool, um, which has got a, quite a fine maritime tradition. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a crack. Wrote off the Guinness Book of Records. Hello, I'd like to break this, please. Didn't think anything more about it. And then they wrote back and said, yep, OK, you're on. And at the time, I was like, um, I was like shit, I, I haven't even signed up for a marathon. I better sign up for one. And so I quickly signed up for the Liverpool Marathon in May and and I read the instructions and they said, you know, got to wear a waterproof hat, fine, waterproof jacket, waterproof trousers, you know, a bit hot, but okay, I'll do that. Carry a three kilo um, fishing box. And I was like, well, that's, that's tough, but okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that on the team, you know, take it on the chin. And they said, and you have to wear welly boots. And that was the thing that I hadn't encountered. Um, so I always thought, you know, dress as a fisherman, wear some trainers, that's fine. But you had to wear proper rubber welly boots. Couldn't fit your trainers inside them. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't cut, I believe I tried everything. You can't cut out the soles of your shoes, can't wear something over the top and do some kind of little trick where to make it easy for yourself. Once again, I thought about taking the easy option, but what, I realized was the most rewarding thing to do was having to suck it up and do not what was easy, but what was hard. Mm. And, and then a matter of weeks later, and this would have been in May. So probably about 110 days ish into my alcohol free journey. I found myself on the, uh, on the start line, the Liverpool marathon dressed as a fisherman in my welly boots um, <laughs> saying, right, here we go with official world record attempt uh, sign on my back. And, and to be honest, it was, it was crazy. Um, within the first mile, I knew that I was in serious trouble. Um, yeah, my, my feet were already killing me. Um, when my family saw me at 10 miles in, um, most of my toenails had fallen off by then. And, uh, and apparently my family said he's not going to make it. And then I had that horrible thing where, I think for about about two and a half hours, I was pretty sure I was going to fail. And and we talk about blips on the alcohol-free journey and we talk about facing failure. But I almost think this is almost worse because if you have a blip, you can say that, you know, you maybe you've worked out a way that didn't happen this time. Um, and you're having to, to sort of tell people in the group, especially that you didn't do things quite well. And I was thinking on a similar route and I was having to still run this bloody marathon with my toenails rattling around my welly boot, um, thinking I failed. And I'm going to, how am I going to explain to people that I failed? How am I going to go into the group, into the one year, no beer community after making all this big 
look at me, I'm going to break a world record. And, and to be honest, I was probably being a bit arrogant about it. And I was being a bit blasé about it. And then to turn around and say, you know what, guys, I've messed up here. I've failed. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. But still, for some reason, even though failure was such a real prospect, I thought I could either quit and just sit down and say, this journey is worthless. I've failed. Or I could still say, yep, I might fail this time, but I'm going to carry on. And you're going to get another one of my phrases here now. I've clearly got a book of them. Um, <laughs> and I said, if, if you've got your car and you get a puncture in a car tire, what do you do? Do you slash the other three tires just to really wreck your whole car? Or do you focus on what's gone wrong and make sure you fix it? And that's what I did. I just focused on putting one foot in front of the other. And, and I think I had about three miles to go when I thought I might do this. And I thought I'm either going to just fail it by by literally a minute or so, or I'm going to do it. And then I just had to, no matter how many people laughed at me on that race, and I thought I'd get lots of support. And a lot of people just shouted at me, you're a bloody idiot and, and you're stupid, especially because by then I was, you know, I, I could hardly walk. I was pretty much crying. By this day, the blood was sloshing around my welly boots. <laughs> and I know it sounds, it sounds, you know, great at the time, but you've got people telling you, you because you're doing something different and you're standing out from the crowd. And by doing so, I was literally saying, look at me, I'm here as a bright yellow fisherman, causing myself lots of pain. And people are saying, you're going to fail. You're not going to do this. You're stupid for even trying. Why don't you just give up? But then to still keep on going through something that's so painful, um, then to cross the finish line was was an amazing experience. And to break that world record by, wow. it turned out I broke it by, I think, about six minutes. Wow. Um, and then to have, you know, have, have the man on the microphone say, you're a Guinness world record holder. And to see my kids there, um, they, they ran the last, you know, 20 meters with me oh and then yeah it was it was unbelievable but i couldn't have done that i couldn't be a world record breaker if if i hadn't had the confidence the one year no beer gave me and and as, as i said earlier i i i don't think i'm anything special i'm not a runner i'm not an athlete at school i was the overweight kid who was asthmatic and the slowest kid in his class at university i was the heavy drinker at work i was the heavy heavy drinker I am not that guy that you see in the office who is always running half marathons every morning and eating clean and never drinking. I was the party boy that was doing so many things I shouldn't, that was destroying my life in so many ways. But just because I decided that I didn't want to tolerate that version of myself anymore, I didn't want to tell myself that story. I wanted to tell myself a different story and, and start to live the dream that I imagined and because of one year no beer, I was able to do that. That's amazing, mate. Really amazing. Thank you. I mean, what an amazing story. And I think a lot of people resonate that. I mean, I certainly was reflecting back on a whole bunch of my life, uh, mm. but also the guys I work with and, um, you know, and that party boy lifestyle um, that is synonymous with our jobs and mm. so many of them and hoping they make the same realization some someday. But um, mm. <laughs> um yeah, so you you um, tell me about some of the the benefits and to going alcohol free because we haven't really dug into that. What changed for you? What changed in your life? What changed in your health? Sure. So in terms of my in terms of my life, the 
the clarity and the positivity is one of the key benefits. Um, one thing I don't talk about too much is that I, I've struggled with mental health issues in the past. Um, I've, so I was certainly at a stage in my life, um, I had the Samaritans, uh, you know, the, the UK suicide helpline. Uh, I had them on speed dial. I went through counselling. I went through cognitive behavioural therapy. I was spending a lot of time with my GP trying to get over this anxiety and depression. Um, because of going alcohol-free, my my head is in the best place it's been for years. Um, the anxiety isn't out the window. I'm you know, I'm not bouncing off the walls like some, you know, like some toddler that's had too much fizzy drinks and, you know, being one of these really happy, clappy people saying life is amazing. But it's it's more of a, of a, of a quieter inner strength that says anything that comes my way, I can deal with it. Um, I'm so much more calmer with my kids. I'm a better father. I, you know, I used to fly off the handle when something went wrong at home. And that was because, really, I wasn't angry at the children or angry at the, the washing machine that had broken. I was angry at myself because, firstly, I didn't know how I could cope with it. And secondly, I knew that this thing would maybe distract me from being able to drink that day. So, say, my, my mental health, my positivity, my inner strength has got so much better. Um, my time has got so much better spent. I'm busier than I ever was, and I feel calmer than I've ever been. So... You know, since going alcohol-free, I've broken the world record. I've run the marathon. I've done an Ironman despite never having done a triathlon before. Uh, I've launched a new business. I am writing a book that I haven't even talked about to you guys in the group yet. Um, you know, I, people have said, you should write a book. So I sat down. I'm now 12,000 words into that book. Wow. wow. Um, I journal every day. I meditate. I'm I'm like I've gone to the to the great life superstore and done like a supermarket sweep and just <laughs> stole everything off the shelf. Um, and it is that just that, that time. And you know what? I, I'm clearly someone with a with an addictive personality that likes adrenaline rushes. Yeah. But I'm almost getting addictive to being so productive. And now it's and we talk about our whys a lot in one year no beer. And now I've got I've always had things like kids obviously want to be a great dad for them, want to have a better life. But I've had so much more time and energy to do all these things. Now it's like I don't want to drink. And even if I did want to drink, I know I couldn't do it because I don't want to waste a day being hungover. And and that's half of the story. It's not just the, as I say, the you know, the the mental health damage it does or the time that's wasted. It's about just being able to get so much shit done. And I'm finally starting to see where where I want to be. And, and I know that you look at any successful person in life or anyone that you look up to, it could be a, an athlete, a business person, even just someone that you know in your friends and family. I guarantee that they are either alcohol-free or a very low alcohol in what they do and are clearly better than a lot of us are controlling their alcohol intake. Anyone, depending, no matter what your definition, definition of success, anyone that you deem to be successful I guarantee they're not out getting trashed three nights a week and they're not spending days in bed hungover or they're not putting their kids in front of a film like I did so I could just sleep off on the sofa. They, they're focused and committed in their life. And you know, I, I believe that we're all superheroes. I believe that we are all unstoppable, incredible people. 
but I, it's a phrase I use in the group quite a lot. I believe that we are all stars in our own superhero movie, especially in the one year no beer community. And you would never go and see a Marvel superhero movie where you sit down, the superhero turns up, he's perfect, or he or she spends two hours having a really easy time. Everything goes their way. They beat the baddie, the end. None of us would pay to watch that movie because it's so dull and it's so uninspiring. For superheroes to be super, they have to go through hard times. They have to fall. They have to get knocked down a few times. But we know by the end of the movie, by the end of the movie, they will rise up and they will defeat their enemy and they will rise up against the odds and they will be victorious. And that's what I believe we can all be. And we're supposed to go through tough times, I believe. And I know I've been through so many, but it's how we overcome it and how we bounce back that that really makes a difference. And and that's one of the key benefits from one year no beer that I feel no matter what life throws at me now. I won't find it easy, but I know that I can cope with it and I know I can still emerge victorious and it won't be easy and it won't be fun, but I'm going to have the inner strength to do it and go on and make my dreams come true and conquer the next list of challenges that I've got lined up. <laughs> Which sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like quite a list and, you know, just, it's really inspirational, you know, your, your journey and the way you've shared it with the community and the community absolutely love it. I mean, your posts are always incredibly engaged and very funny. And I don't know what, I don't know what filter you use, but you always manage to make yourself look like you've got 14 abs. Um, <laughs> there was no envy there at all. None, no envy. Um, wow, Rory, I'm, I'm the envious of you. You've got a great body under that t-shirt. I know it. <laughs> under that extra kilo of fat. No, anyway, um, two, four kilos. Um, so um, sidestep slightly. There's something, tell me about Steve. You know, I, I grew up as an only child. Um, you know, I was born in 1982. So, um, you know, what, what a decade to be born in. My yeah. dad um, was, as I say, a, a creative genius. Um, he was very into computers. Um, he was probably into computers and computer programming even more than he was into alcohol. Um, he, you know, he, he loved technology. He loved inventing things. He was that stereotypical guy who had great ideas and could create brilliant things, but had zero business sense. Um, and then my dad started working with a guy called Steve. Um, Steve lived in America. And one day, basically, my dad um, came in and he said, right, I'm going to start working with Steve. Pack your bags, everybody. We're going to move to America. Um, so being a, a, a six-year-old, it would have been in 1988, I, um, you know, I, I packed up my shell suit and my, uh, my Sony Walkman, and we flew over and we lived in America for two years. Um, and things worked out pretty well with my dad and Steve. They, they invented some quite cool things. It was basically my dad's claim to fame was he invented a way to record sounds on computers. Wow. And now that's something obviously we take for granted, but he yeah. invented a piece of software that would record what you're saying and play it back to you, which in 1988 was a pretty big deal. Um, but things went a bit sour between Steve and my dad. Um, my, my parents were argued quite a lot. My mum didn't want to go to America. She was lonely. They were both drinking too much. And, and Steve and my dad fell out. Um, now it turns out that um, Steve's last name was Jobs. Uh, as in Steve Jobs, as in the founder of Apple. 
So uh, needless to say, things worked out a lot better for Steve Jobs financially than it did for my dad um, because we, we flew back home to, to England very quickly. I thought we were coming back for, for a summer holiday. And only when we got home did my dad say, oh, by the way, you're never going to go to your school again, never see your friends again. That life that you built for yourself as an eight-year-old child, you've just left that. And you never had a chance to say goodbye. Um, wow. But so that was that was tough to take. But um, so, yeah, so my, my dad's claim to fame was he, um, he was Steve Jobs' business partner for a while. Um, until he pissed him off and got fired, basically. Um, But who would have known? So, yeah, Steve Jobs grew up in those, uh, yeah, lived in those mansions in California. Growing up, uh, my parents hid behind the sofa um, and made me answer the door to the debt collectors because they know that the bailiffs can't enter a house if a child answered the door. So, slightly different lives, but um, but there you go. And you know what? I wouldn't change it for the world. And, And again, we we could tell ourselves a story and we could tell ourselves so many things about why we drink, um, about my childhood was rubbish. My parents argued, I, you know, someone was abusive to me. Someone, um, you know, took me away from my friends. Someone was, you know, broke my heart. I had all those things and I used it as a story to tell myself mm. for so long. And I would give myself a hard time and then I'd drink to feel better. Then I'd feel bad for drinking. So I'd drink some more. And then as, you know, as, as our great man, Tony Robbins says, change your story, change your life. And that's what I tried to do. And uh, you know what? I, I almost, and I think I can almost say, I love the fact that so much shit happened to me as a child, as a teenager, and even in my thirties, because now I feel like it's made me bulletproof. And it's now and yeah. only thanks to one year no beer and being alcohol free, I feel I've finally got the power to, to take whatever is ahead of me. And I, now I not only want to do that for myself, but I want to help as many people as I can to do the things they thought they couldn't do, to take themselves out of their comfort zone and to do the things they once thought impossible. Amazing. Really amazing. You're an amazing human. And um, I'm excited to see what more comes from you going forward. Exactly as you said, the book, we'll be finding out about that soon. And um, we'll definitely be hearing more from you um, in One Year No Beer anyway. Um, Before we finish up, what what are your top tips for people being alcohol free? So my my top tips are number one, Never a perfect time to start, so just do it. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I said earlier, we just have to decide, just wake up one day and say, this is how it's going to be. This is what I have to do and just decide to do it. Tip two would be think about your whys. And I know that's a cliche, but there's something more to it because it's almost, it's not about the goal. It's about the the structure that you put behind it because of your whys. So everyone goes into one year no beer saying, I want to change my relationship with alcohol. Some people succeed. Some people take a lot longer to succeed. And why is that? And I believe the people to succeed have not a stronger why, but they they almost put a greater structure around themselves. And I suppose a, a non-technical way is, is you can't do it half-assed. If you're going to do it, then think about your alcohol-free drinks. Think about maybe not hanging around certain people if you know they're going to be pouring shots down your throat. Having all that structure around it, just sitting on the sofa and saying, I've paid my money, I'd like to give up alcohol now, please, isn't going to be enough. 
it is a difficult journey sometimes, but if you're prepared to go on that journey, the rewards are unbelievable. Yeah. Um, tip three um, is a tactical one, alcohol-free beers. Um, I'm, I'm six months in, actually. Tomorrow is my six-month anniversary. Hey! I, yeah, exactly. I've got the post ready to go. Um, I still drink alcohol-free beers like there's no tomorrow because I know Friday night at home, I'm going to want a beer. Saturday night at home when I'm cooking, I'm going to want a beer. Sunday night. I don't drink them every day, but especially over the weekend, you know what? If I knock back six or seven Heineken Zeros, that's that's great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'd rather do that than, than, than seven or eight Heineken fives. Um, then the, the final point is, and may, this may not apply to everyone, but it's, it's set yourself a challenge to do something different. Yeah. And, and like I said, I know what I do is, is very extreme and quite frankly, people will be stupid to, to do what I do. <laughs> so I know I am. Um, but it's, it's set yourself a goal, whether it is, you know, it's running a Spartan race, for yeah. example, or it is doing a park run. It doesn't have to be exercise or focus. It could be to get into yoga once a week. You know, I had something like if I got to 90 days, I was going to say I'm going to buy myself a new iPad. Yeah. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily run a marathon, but you have to have something to reward yourself. And and also, I think in life, there's there's so little validation these days in a world when everyone is screaming out for validation for no reason, when people really bloody earn it, like by doing through one year, no beer, the, our group is amazing. Our group is one of the most wonderful things I've ever encountered, but the outside world may not turn around and throw you a party for and go, yay, maracas, 90 days. <laughs> everyone else in the world is like, well, I've got shit to do. I've got the kids to pick up. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well done. You've, you haven't had a drink for a while. Life goes along around you. So set yourself a challenge and give yourself a reward for doing it. Brilliant. And even if, I mean, look at our, our legendary Sharon when she got to 365. Yeah. Her reward was on her own and she thought about it and she planned it and she took herself away for an amazing retreat. And sometimes you have to do something just for you. And it feels a bit selfish in this day and age. But just putting yourself first and thinking, I am going to go. I am going to go to that health spa. I am going to get that massage. I am going to buy that iPad. Yeah, I should probably buy things like you know, a mortgage payment or <laughs> shopping. You know, it's about sometimes you have to put yourself first. And alcohol sometimes makes us so selfish. But this is being selfish in a different way. It's rewarding yourself for doing something amazing and going on such an unbelievable journey. Yeah. And and if people go on that journey and they embrace it, then then the rewards really are limitless. Absolutely. Amazing. Great tips. Freddie, thank you so much for being a part of One Year No Beer. Thank you for everything you're doing for the community and the group. Uh, well welcome. done on your journey. You're just such an inspiration. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. And I look forward to meeting everyone in person very soon. Absolutely. <laughs> for listening to the One Year No Beer podcast. For a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself, head on over to oneyearnobeer.com. One